What is your worst problem? Do you have any problems? If I asked you the question, what is the problem with people? What would you say? Now, I didn't say a problem, I said the problem. And I'm in a room full of Christians, so I guess we would probably say sin. But what do we mean? What is sin? What this problem? What is the essence? You know, if you read theology books, read a few theology books, they say a lot of different things about the essence of sin. Any violation in thought, motive, or deed, or emotion, any deviation from the righteousness of God. That's one, that's a pretty good definition of sin. And I was trying to think of all the various ways. So probably what you should just say is any departure from the righteousness of God. Sin. I think that's a pretty good definition. I think we'd also have to agree that any departure from the righteousness of God is utterly insane. Because God is God. And if he is indeed righteous, it must be impossible for him to tolerate any deviation from that righteousness. So, sin is crazy, yet it has occurred. It occurred in such a way that it's unrecoverable. Once a sinner, always a sinner. I, you know, if I commit a crime, I remain guilty of the crime. I can pay my debt to society, but I'm still a person who has committed that crime. I'm still guilty. And I might want to discuss whether I can really pay my debt to society because if, imagine someone commits a murder and they give their own life in satisfaction of justice for that crime. You know what? It does not undo the murder. So you might even wonder whether a person can actually make a satisfaction to justice that actually fulfills justice. In fact, I think you would have to say if you read the scriptures, the scriptures assert that it's not actually possible. But I want to come around to what then do we mean when we say sin? What happened? Why did we go crazy? 
What is the craziness? And what I want to tell you is what it is at its very basis is an alienation. Wow, that's a giant $4 word. Alienation means a breakdown of fellowship, a separation of persons from friendship to enemy, alienation. And what happens in sin, what happens that is the very nature of sin is an alienation from God who is the source of all righteousness. You can sort of do the right thing. But if it is not God doing the right thing in you, then it is not quite really righteous. And of course, God made man to be the exhibit of his own nature and character. So if we wanted to say what the essence of departure from the righteousness of God is, it would be to become the expression of our own character and nature instead of his. To be God unto ourselves. Or as it says in the book of Genesis, in the mouth of the Satan himself, you will be like him in knowing good and evil. And so Adam and Eve fell for this. It was insane, but they nevertheless did. And so we all are in, we all start alienated from him. And so not actually capable of producing actual full complete righteousness. We are disabled in this way. This is what is meant in the concept we call original sin. So here's what I'm coming to, and that is our basic problem in humanity is a problem of alienation, of separation of relationship, of breakdown of relationship between us and God so that we are not living from him, but unto ourselves. And that is a rebellion against his plan in the creation of humanity. He created us to live from him into the rest of creation, into one another's lives, to be the image bearers of his nature, to be the ones who take what he is like and exhibit it in the world by walking with him, knowing him, and so revealing him in our lives in the created world. And so our problem is a problem of alienation. That is a problem we are not in a position to solve. And in fact, according to scripture, we don't even have much of a desire to solve it. We, in fact, want to continue living unto ourselves. But you know what? Every other problem that we have is just one more expression of that problem. 
You can see this in Adam and Eve when they turn away from God and become God unto themselves. What happens to their relationship with each other? It breaks. It breaks. They still love each other, but they're not really capable of loving each other anymore. Some of you are married. You have a spouse. You're in a committed, covenantal relationship with that person. But it is hard to get right. You don't always do right by them. They don't always do right by you. Because we're broken in this way because of our alienation from God, our sinful nature, the Bible calls it. We need, above everything, to be restored to fellowship with God. And it is only in being restored to fellowship with God that we retrieve our sanity and that we begin to be able again to live out of his love to love another, to share his nature, his goodness, his grace, his love with others, and honestly, with the world around us to care for it the way he wants it cared for. Now, I'm talking about all this as a way to talk about the old tabernacle. (laughs) How do we connect these things? We're coming in the book of Hebrews to chapter 9, which is about the old tabernacle, the temple of Israel, the which before it was a building, it was a tent. Because God went with his people. Wherever they went, they carried the tent. They set up the tent. That's where they met God. That's where they worshiped God, the God, Yahweh God. I am that I am God. The God of, well, the only true God, the triune eternal God, the maker of heaven and earth, that God put himself in a tent that they packed up and carried to the next stop. And then finally, you know, you remember the whole discussion with David about he wants to build God a permanent house. He says, look, your people are living in permanent houses. You should have a permanent house. And God says to David, well, you can't build it. You've you've got too much blood on your hands. (laughs) So Solomon built it. And the temple, the building, was a replica of the tent. Had the same structure. And the building, uh, I put an illustration in your bulletin. I hope you will look at now. Because what's described in Hebrews chapter 9 is this. This is the layout of the tabernacle. So let's just read this. Now. The first covenant, in fact, had regulations for worship and for its earthly sanctuary, the tent. For a tent was prepared, the outer one, which contained the lampstand, the table, the presentation of the loaves. You can see that in the drawing there. There's an outer chamber. 
Now you might have already noticed there's a chamber outside the outer chamber. There's a yard, if you will, around that holy place and the holy of holy place. And you know, there's actually a courtyard outside of that. There's layers of outside and inside. Okay, just keep that in mind. Okay, so I've got to continue reading. A tent was prepared, the outer one, which contained the lampstand, the table, the presentation of the loaves. This is called the holy place. And after the second curtain, there was a tent called the holy of holies, or the most holy place. It contained the golden altar incense, the ark of the covenant, covered entirely with gold. In this ark were the golden urn containing the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant, the very stones where the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God onto these rock tablets there in that box called the Ark of the Covenant. And above the Ark were the cherubim, those are angels of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Seat. Uh huh. Now, isn't it's not the time, now is not the time to speak of these things in detail. Well, that's frustrating because all these things make me really curious details, but okay, that's not, we can't, we can't get stuck. So with these things prepared like this, the priests entered continually into the outer tent as they performed their duties. Now, continually means daily, every day. They went in and out. They were all the time. They were making sacrifices in the outer, the holy place. But only the high priest enters once a year into the inner tent and not without blood that he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. That means accidental sins. (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but you are accidentally sinning a lot. Not even knowing, ignorant. Okay, well, anyway, the Holy Spirit is now, today, making clear that the way into the holy place had not yet appeared as long as the old tabernacle was standing. This, was, it, this the old tabernacle, was a symbol for the time then present, or we could translate that for the present time. It's not clear. When gifts and sacrifices were offered that could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They served only for matters of food and drink and various washings. They are external regulations imposed until the new order came. So, that's the old tabernacle in Hebrews chapter 9. Let's talk about some of these things. It's a tent of sometimes named the tent of meeting. But access is limited. Access is limited. There are sacrifices going out in the holy place all the time. 
only once a year, one person only can go into the most holy place, which is the very presence of God. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant is the covenantal commandments inscribed on it by the very hand of God is, in fact, the throne of God, the seat of mercy. The two tents that are described here are called the holy place and the holy holy place, which is the Hebrew way of saying the most holy place. Can't get any holier than holy holy. It's holy among holy. Do you know what the word holy means? Separate. Reserved. Not for you. Did you ever go into a restaurant and there's a room in the back has a sign on the door? Reserved. You can't go in there. So here we are, meeting, where meeting is not permitted. The very name of the place is not for you, holy. To God alone, and you go in there, even if you're the priest who's allowed to go in there, you better bring a sacrifice. You better not bring yourself unto yourself in here. You see, the temple illustrates in its very design our problem. Separated from him. It's... There's two tents. There's the separate tent, and there's the totally separate tent. Separated, inaccessible. The mercy seat, the mercy seat is in a place where we are not allowed to go. It's holy. There's a daily sacrifice in the holy place. There's a yearly sacrifice in the most holy place. A sacrifice, a sacrifice, a sacrifice, a sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? It is an acknowledgement that we have offended him. Payment is due. Justice, his righteousness requires payment because we him. Even unintentionally. We live in a dying. We live in a state of dead, according to Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins.
the book of Hebrews calls our righteous deeds dead works. That is offensive, I admit it. Dead works, that is, the works of the dead. However, there is a tent. (laughs) There is a tent. God has established this people, Israel, and has designed a tent of meeting where he is, in fact, present among them. He's there. But you know, he's only accessible to us if he is, in fact, merciful. So it's not the throne of righteousness, it's the mercy seat. What a great thing that in the Holy of Holies is a throne of God with the name Mercy. Mercy. Praise God. Now, of course, the writer of the book of Hebrews is telling us about well, Jesus in comparison to the sacrifices of the old covenant. And so we start to read about that, what the Spirit has shown, the revelation of the Spirit in our time. And what he tells us is that the way into the Holy of Holies is not known as long as it's arranged like this tent. We can't find our way into the presence of God. In fact, most of us, I imagine here, are Gentiles. We couldn't even come into the, anything on this drawing you have in your bulletin. We had to stay outside the gate. We weren't allowed even into the courtyard of the presence of God. And yet, he says, the Spirit is revealing in our day that the way in, oh, there's a way in. But it was not known, it's not available to us as long as the old tabernacle stands. And when this was written, of course, the temple was still sitting there, but not for long. And he says it's a symbol, it's a a type, it's pointing to something else. It's It's a representation of something else. And the real temple... It's in part a symbol of how we remain alienated from God unless some new kind of sacrifice comes along. We're alienated from God. We continue to do the things that alienate us from God because true righteousness can only be the fruit of fellowship with God. And so if I'm not walking in fellowship with God, whatever I do, even if I do the right thing, is not an expression of the goodness of God. It's an expression of me, which is unrighteous. Because it broke the very purpose for which I was made. 
Well, in the present time, we are learning that this, is, that this temple is a symbol. The priest goes in with the sacrifice, but he says, here's the problem, the gifts and the sacrifices and the washings. Have you ever read the book of Leviticus? It, I, I've frequently read part of the book of Leviticus because it is hard to read the whole thing. But it is a long, elaborate process of sacrifices. Oh my goodness, it is hard to figure that stuff out. And washings and ceremonial cleansings. And if this happens, then you need to make this kind of sacrifice with this kind of creature on this altar. And day after day after day, all these sacrifices, you know what they didn't do? Solve the problem. They sort of covered the problem for now. They made it so that there could be a tent of meeting in the presence of the nation of Israel, but they didn't actually deal with the alienation. And the very structure of the place shows that it wasn't really intended for that. So the gifts, the sacrifices, the washings made in the old tabernacle, according to our text, could not perfect the conscience. That means they don't actually relieve your guilt before God. They're just physical, material, external regulations imposed on the flesh until, until, the time of the new order, until the arrival of the real thing that they are the representation of, which we've learned in the book of Hebrews, is the real temple in the presence of God the Father in heaven itself, where Jesus presents himself as a sacrifice for sin. And we will read later, like in the very next chapter in the book of Hebrews, in his own body opens the veil to provide access to the holy of holies. The very meaning of the place is inaccessible, and yet he provides access to God, standing before God. I to draw a big, fat, heavy line on this drawing to represent the veil because it was an absolute barrier to the presence of God. And when Jesus was crucified, God himself tore it in half. Now, we're not going to go too much further into Hebrews chapter 9, but I would like to notice that <clears throat> in verse 11, we read this. But so here we have this, its sacrifices don't fully resolve our issue. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, 
then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. And I'm going to just stop there. But uh, Christ, but Christ. Now, we're going to learn more about this next time. Here's the thing I want to notice as we come to this table, this Lord's table that we read about from the book of Luke earlier. Our worship, our worship, this gathering right here, right now, our worship is in the most holy place. Where our access to God has been assured by the sacrifice of Christ. And so, we stand here today in the actual presence, the real fellowship of God the Father Almighty. Our worship is a commemoration of the new covenant in His blood. This little ceremony that Jesus established is the worship. It's, it's remembering that the sacrifice to end all those other sacrifices, this, the sacrifice has been made and we now have new life in Him. The once and for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Our worship is our pledge of receiving, which is a funny thing to say, a pledge to receive, like... I promise I'll take it. We're saved through faith, but even the faith we are, are saved through is a gift from Him. It is a thing He has done. We didn't, you know, because Jesus died, we don't run into the temple and tear up the veil. Because, you know, Jesus died for our sins, so we're going to get in there one way or another. No, God took the veil out of the way. And we find ourselves in his presence in Christ. Our worship is a pledge of our reception of new life in Christ. Drawing near, as the book of Hebrews puts it. Drawing near. The door open. Come on in. That door was shut, nailed, closed, but Jesus' sacrifice has not. This is what Romans is talking about when it says, present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. It's a pledge of reception. Our worship is our lives lived exhibiting the sacrificial love of God in Christ by the Spirit. Okay, that was a complicated sentence. Our worship is to receive Christ at the table and to reflect Christ when we go from it because we have received Him. And so we glorify God in exhibiting the love of God. It's not 
That's not the same as saying, hey, be loving. Is it? You're all trying to be loving, I assume, unless you're really psychopathic, but we're all trying to be loving. We want to love the people we're supposed to love. And then, of course, Jesus comes along and says, love even the people you're not supposed to love, which is what he did. But in any case, we all want to be loving. But being loving isn't the commandment. Being loving is no exaltation of God. You can be loving in an exaltation of yourself. Look how loving I am. Everyone tells me how loving I am. What a loving person. Who's getting the glory? What God has designed humanity to do is to carry out his love. For my life to be to the praise of his glory, it must be an exhibition of him. It must be an exhibition of his love. So when we talk about the worship of ancient Israel and the lockout that is involved in the tabernacle that Jesus has resolved so that we have access to the very throne of God and I can go in, I can address God as Abba. That is insane. That is crazy good that God regards himself as my Papa. I have restored fellowship in the sacrifice of Christ. And so when I come to the table, I just commemorate this. I'm not making it happen by taking this communion. I'm commemorating. I'm going, oh, yeah, right. Jesus gave his life, his body, his blood for me so that I can come to God and receive the blessing of fellowship with God in Christ by the Spirit and go into the world to show His love and so live to the praise of His glory. Wow! These things are the mercies of God. And Romans says, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies a living sacrifice. So, this morning, I invite you to come to the table of his grace, to eat and drink the body and the blood of Christ, to receive again, to receive anew, to remind yourself of your reception, to pledge your reception to God of his great grace. And we pray that the Spirit of God will work in us so that this, this remembrance of his good grace will be transformed. And we will exhibit it into the world. First to each other, and then into the world. That is our astounding privilege. Father, it just doesn't seem adequate to say thank you. 
Lord, please help us to know resurrection of his intercession. Lord, help us to follow him into your presence to enjoy your fatherhood in our lives, your provision, your supernatural work on an everyday basis. To see the joy of living sacrificially for the benefit of another person. Lord, we just, we give you thanks. And so we come to the table to receive you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.